Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com live. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fort Sinopoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so much once again for listening. We've got another great episode for you today. We're not going to review the Sassuolo match. We already reviewed that match on the latest episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide with our special guest Antonio Mango. If you haven't listened to that yet, be sure to check it out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Instead, we'll start the pod with a review of our Femenile match against Sassuolo on match day 14. In part 2, we'll go back to Serie A and check in on how our competition did on match day 25. And in part 3, we'll preview our match on Sunday against Bologna. So let's start with Napoli Femminile. Heading into this match, we were sitting 2nd from the bottom of the table, while Sassuolo were in 3rd behind only Juventus and Milan. This was the 3rd meeting between these two clubs this season. The 1st was in Serie A, which Sassuolo won 3-1. Paola Di Marino scored the opening goal of that match for Napoli, but 16-year-old Haley Bugea equalized on a brilliant solo effort just before the break. Sassuolo took the lead on what I thought was a fortunate penalty decision. Camila Dubkova converted the penalty. Bugeha put the match away with her second of the match. That was a tough result. Overall, Sassuolo were the better side. But besides that penalty, we also hit the upright and Didi Lemmy made a couple of big saves in the second half. The second meeting was a 1-1 draw in the Coppa Italia Femminile. Once again, we opened the scoring only 4 minutes into the match. Leonora Goldini scored that goal. Benedetta Brignoli equalized at the half-hour mark, and neither team scored again after that. Even though we finished tied with Sassuolo on 4 points in our group, they advanced on goal differential, so we haven't had much success heading into this match. Both sides were without some key players. In fact, 4 of the 5 goal scorers from the previous 2 meetings 
were not available. We were without our regular keeper Catalina Perez and a number of forwards. Izota Noki was suspended for this match and Debbie Chatsinikolaou, Evi Popadinova and Eleonora Goldini were all injured. Sassuolo were without forwards Haley Bugea and Camila Dubkova. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Sassuolo lined up in a 4-3-1-2 formation with Didi Lemmy in goal. Benedetta Orsi and Maria Luisa Filangeri played at center back. Erika Santoro played at left back and Martina Lenzini played at right back. Mana Mihashi started in the center of the midfield with Martina Tomaselli to her left and Benedetta Brignoli to her right. Finally, Veronica Battellani played as the trequartista in behind Valeria Pirone and Valeria Monterubiano. Andrea Pistolesi lined up in his usual 4-3-3 with Sabrina Tasselli in goal. Alexandra Hune and Guomi Arnatodir started at centre-back. Martina Fuzzini played at left-back and Elisabetta Olivieri played at right-back. Sara Houche played in the centre of the midfield with Emma Eriko to her left and Lara Pedersen getting her first start on the right side of the midfield. Up top, Jenny Hillman started on the left wing. Vlada Kubasova started again over the injured Evi Popadinova, and Pia Riesdijk started at striker. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Apparently it started with some drama, the first minute of this match was not available on the feed that I watched it on, but apparently Riesdijk was fouled in the area and the penalty was not given. Besides that, we did not create any clear-cut chances in the first half. Sassuolo were clearly the better side. They had a number of opportunities to score in the first half, and more often than not, it was because of mistakes that we made. Ten minutes into the match, Mihashi fired an absolute rocket into the bar after Arnato Deer failed to clear the ball out. Then in the 16th minute, Tasselli made an excellent save on Tomazelli's bending effort. That play started after Hillman played a risky pass into the middle of the pitch inside our own half. Tasselli did a fantastic job filling in for Catalina Perez. About midway through the first half, she made two excellent saves in the space of three minutes. First, another Napoli turnover allowed Battellani to fire from the top of the box, but Tasselli made the diving save. Then, on a Sassuolo corner kick, Tasselli stopped Pirone's header that was destined for the top corner. Sassuolo came close with another header in the 34th minute when Lanzini crossed for Battellani, but her header sailed just over the bar. Other than a few shots from distance, we didn't get any decent shots on target until the final minute of the half. Fuzzini played a shot cross into the area, but Lemmy made the save. All it needed was a touch from Hillman, and we would have equalized. So we went into the break all level. We looked much better in the second half, but it was Sassuolo who opened the scoring from a corner kick. They were looking dangerous from set pieces all match. Batalani played in the corner, and Pirone got an excellent header on the ball, directing her shot toward the bottom corner. Tasselli made a great save again, but wasn't able to hold onto the ball, and Santoro was there to tap in the rebound. Much like our men's team, we seem to finally wake up and push forward after we fell behind. One of our best chances of the match came in the 68th minute when Kubasova played Hillman through. She was 1v1 with Lemmy, but the keeper was really quick off her line and made a huge save. Then in the 80th minute, Hillman played a dangerous ball into the area and again it only needed a touch this time from Kubasova, but it was just out of her reach and Lemmy collected the ball. Finally, in the 83rd minute, Mahisha conceded possession in the Sassuolo half, and Kubasova took an outrageous shot from about 30 yards out, but struck the upright, and the ball stayed out. 
Even with six minutes of stoppage time, we were not able to score the equalizer, and the match finished 1-0. So this match was almost a mirror image of the first meeting. We fell behind, a penalty decision did not go in our favor, Lemmy made some important saves, and we hit the upright. With the loss, we remained second from the bottom of the table. Fortunately, San Marino played first place Juventus and lost 3-1, so they remained four points ahead of us. Bari lost 6-1 to second place Milan, so they remained one point behind us. After the match, Pistolezzi gave his usual speech about how we deserved more. He's absolutely right, that's been the story of our season, but at some point, we need to pick up some results. Amazingly, we're not quite out of it yet with only 4 points through 14 matches. Since we've already replaced our coach, President Raffaella Carlino went to the next person in line. Sporting director Gianni Dingeo was relieved of his duties. Our Feminile will be back in action on Sunday to take on Inter, and we'll recap that match in our next episode. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll return to Serie A and recap the top matches from match day 25. In part 2, we'll check in on the clubs at the top of the table. Heading into this round, we were sitting in 6th place, tied with Lazio on 43 points. Inter were top of the table on 56 points, 4 points clear of Milan. Juve and Atalanta were in 3rd on 46 points each, and Roma were in 5th on 44 points. In every match this round, we took a moment to remember Davide Astori, who tragically passed away 3 years ago. His image was displayed in the 13th minute of every match. So let's start with Lazio who were supposed to open the action on Tuesday, but with the current COVID outbreak at Torino, the local ASL required the club to quarantine. Just like with Napoli Juve, Lega Serie A insisted that the game will proceed as scheduled because Torino did not have 10 or more players with COVID, and really the number didn't matter because Torino had already used their one post moment on Friday when they were scheduled to play against Sassuolo. Obviously, when these COVID protocols were created, they weren't thinking about midweek fixtures because it takes a lot longer than three or four days to recover from COVID. So, because Torino did not arrive at the Olimpico, Lazio were awarded a 3-0 win on the table. Torino will appeal, and you have to assume that the match will be postponed given the precedent that has already been set between Juve and Napoli. I did find this all rather ironic though because Torino owner Urbano Cairo was very critical of Napoli at the time of our postponement, but then again, perhaps he's saying to himself, well if Napoli can do it, then why can't I? So with Lazio not playing, Juve opened the action on Tuesday against Spezia, picking up a 3-0 win on goals from Alvaro Morata, Federico Chiesa, and Cristiano Ronaldo. Mbala Nzola was making his first start since January 11th after missing six matches with an ankle injury. Meanwhile, Matthias De Ligt was a late scratch for Juventus. This scoreline doesn't really reflect the way this match went, particularly in the first half. If you didn't know better, it would have been difficult to tell which club was the nine-time reigning champions and which club was newly promoted. For the better part of the first half, Spezia were the better side. Neither side created many chances, but Spezia were more positive and they defended really well. 
We've talked about Vincenzo Italiano's dissertation and how he wants 11 playmakers on the field. You can really see that in how Spezia defend. They don't just boot the ball forward and hope for the best. Instead, they take the ball down, look for the open man, and pass their way out of danger, which then enables them to transition to attack. I thought Martin Ehrlich was really excellent for Spezia at the back. He made a number of important blocks, clearances, and tackles on Juve's big guns over the course of the match. Juve finally woke up with about 10 minutes remaining in the first half, and once again, most of the attacking threat was coming from Federico Chiesa and Dejan Kulusevski on the right side of the pitch. Ronaldo came closest to scoring in the first half. Juve broke quickly on the counter, but Ronaldo's shot hit the upright and stayed out. Credit to Andrea Pirlo, in the 61st minute, he replaced Gianluca Frabotta with Federico Bernardeschi and Weston McKenney with Alvaro Morata. It was no surprise that Frabotta was removed. He was on a yellow card for a vicious tackle on Luca Vignali early in the match that I thought could have easily been a red card. Chiesa and Bernardeschi immediately linked up to score the first goal of the match. Alexandro played the ball over the top to Bernardeschi. The ball was just out of the reach of the outstretched leg of Vignali. I thought Vignali really struggled in this match, especially after those changes. Bernardeschi picked up Morata's run to the near post and the Spaniards scored with his first touch of the match. The play was initially ruled offside and then after a very long VAR review, the goal was confirmed. Now, I have two issues with this. First, I don't understand how the offside flag went up so quickly on such a close play. There was a play in the first half where Keza was about 10 yards offside and the flag stayed down. Keza was so obviously offside on that play that you could see that he didn't even want to complete the play because he knew he was offside. So on an obvious offside like that, the flag stayed down and then on a close offside, the flag went up rather quickly. The second issue I have is the review itself, which showed that Bernardeschi was just barely onside. I don't know how you could possibly pinpoint the exact moment that that pass was played. The technology just isn't good enough right now to be using VAR to make these decisions that are off by centimeters. We didn't even see the VAR review until about 15 minutes after that goal was scored, so I really don't like how VAR is being used in these close situations. That goal really changed the complexion of the match. Spezia had to get forward to equalize, which then opened up the field for Juve. Chiesa doubled Juve's lead in the 71st minute. Adrian Rabiot played the ball to Bernardeschi on the wing. He found Chiesa in the area. Chiesa's first shot was nicely stopped by Ivan Provedel, but the rebound went straight back to Chiesa, who managed to hook his shot in while falling to the ground. Juve got another big win in the 78th minute when Cristiano Ronaldo actually hit the target on a free kick. He didn't score, but just hitting the target from a free kick is actually a pretty big deal for him these days. Ronaldo did get his goal, though, in the dying minutes of the match. Juve countered after Emmanuel Giassi slipped and conceded possession in Juve's half. Juve were 3v1 when Aaron Ramsey picked up Ronaldo's run, and he neatly tucked his left-footed strike inside the far post. That was Ronaldo's 20th goal of the season, making him the first player in any of the top five European leagues to reach 20 goals in each of his last dozen campaigns. Finally, in the final minute of stoppage time, Spezia were awarded what I thought was a fortuitous penalty kick. Mehdi Demiral appeared to be running shoulder to shoulder with Giassi and I thought he got the ball first. However, VAR intervened and the official concluded that Giassi was fouled, so the penalty was given. That was unfortunate because I thought Demiral actually had a pretty good game up to that point. He made a number of key blocks over the course of the match, but the football gods intervened. Andrei Galabinov's penalty was really poorly taken and Wojtek Szczesny made an easy save to protect the clean sheet. Juve may not be playing that well, 
But one thing they are doing well is not conceding a lot of goals. They've got the fewest goals allowed in the league at 20, which on average is less than one goal a game, and that was Juve's fifth clean sheet in their last seven matches. Meanwhile, Milan drew Udinese 1-1 on goals from Rodrigo Becao and Frank Kessi. Stefano Pioli was forced to rotate with the likes of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Hakan Chalanoglu not available for this match. Rafael Leao started for Ibrahimovic, who took a break from his presentation duties in San Remo so he could take in the match. Brahim Diaz started for Chalanoglu, and Pierre Kululu started at right back over Davide Calabria. As usual, Udinese set up to defend, often with all 10 outfield players sitting well within their own half. That certainly frustrated the Milan attack, which could only generate two shots in the first half. The first was a decent effort from Brahim at the top of the box, but Juan Musso was well positioned to make the save. The second didn't come until the 40th minute when Alexis Salamaker sliced into the area and fired a low shot on target, but Musso made a quality save, kicking the ball out as the weight of his body pulled him the other way. Udinese had their best chance in the opening minutes of the second half. Teo Hernandez played a weak pass which Roberto Pereira got to before Donnarumma. He crossed for Ilya Nestorovsky in front of the goal with only Alessio Romagnoli to beat but somehow the Milan captain cleared the header off the line. Milan responded with a chance of their own only minutes later. Juan Musso did well to tip Suelijo Meta's curling effort over the bar. Mieta replaced Sandro Tonali at the break, leaving Milan fans to wonder if he picked up an injury. Musso made another excellent save on the ensuing corner kick, this time pushing away Francesi's header at the near post. In each of the last dozen games between these clubs, there has not been more than a single goal scored combined. Surprisingly, in the 68th minute, Udinese opened the scoring from a corner kick. Rodrigo Becao headed toward the goal and Donnarumma hesitated for just a second, anticipating that Nestorovsky might get a touch on the ball. Nestorovsky didn't get a touch and that hesitation was just enough for the ball to roll past the Italian keeper. Udinese had been defending for the entire match, so it's no surprise that they went into full lockdown mode after the goal. Unfortunately, Udinese picked up a couple of injuries as well. Pereira picked up a cramp, so he was replaced by Samir. Then only minutes after coming into the match, Samir pulled his hamstring. But that substitution to replace Pereira with Samir was Udinese's third window, meaning they could not make any more changes even though they had only made four substitutions. That meant that Udinese had to play the end of the match with a man down. Then in the dying seconds of the match, on Milan's final attack, Milan crossed the ball into the area and Jens Strieger Larsen literally swatted the ball with his hand well above his head. It was such a blatant error that many people are speculating that there was some sort of match fixing at play here. Kessie converted the penalty which was his 8th goal from the penalty spot this season. So Milan salvaged a point on the final kick of the game. It was still a disappointing result though. Milan have only won 1 of their last 6 matches in all competitions and they have a record of 1 win, 1 draw and 2 losses in their last 4 Serie A matches. Atalanta spoiled Serse Cosmi's debut in charge of Crotone after he replaced Giovanni Stroppa earlier in the week. Atalanta won 5-1 on goals from 5 different players. Robin Gozins, Jose Palomino, Luis Muriel, Josip Ilicic, and Alexei Miranchuk scored for Atalanta, while Simi got the lone goal for Crotone. This was an interesting match. Atalanta didn't waste any time finding the back of the goal. Gozins opened the scoring in the 12th minute. Both the cross from Ilicic and the header from Gozins were both superb. 
Luis Muriel should have doubled Atalanta's lead about five minutes later. Ilicic played him through and he was 1v1 with Alex Cordes, but Muriel's first touch let him down and he wasn't able to beat the keeper. At that point, I thought this was going to be another blowout, but Crotone managed to equalize with a combination of good fortune and classy finishing. About midway through the first half, Raymond Freuler and Christian Romero got mixed up and that allowed the ball to roll through for Simi. He picked it up at the top of the box and calmly chipped over Marco Sportello to make the score 1-1. Then only a few minutes after that, Atalanta nearly shot themselves in the foot again. Ilicic played a wayward pass back that was intercepted by Junior Macias. With only one touch, he blew past Palomino and Romero to get clear on goal. Unfortunately, instead of taking the shot, he tried to dribble around Sportiello and the keeper made the tackle. So then I thought, okay, maybe Crotone will make a game of this. Both sides had opportunities before the break. Muriel fired a shot straight at Cordaz and Macias fired a shot high and wide, so just like in their previous match against Juventus, Crotone took a draw into the break. In fact, in that match they held on for 62 minutes and I thought they might actually hold Juve to a draw, whereas in this match I had no doubt that Atalanta would get their goal and it didn't take long to come. Only 3 minutes into the half, Palomino scored after some dreadful defending on the Atalanta corner kick. Somehow the ball got through to the center back and he put away his 5th career goal in Serie A. Just like against Juve, once Crotone conceded that goal, the wheels fell off pretty quickly. Atalanta added two more within 10 minutes of the Palomino goal. First, Luis Muriel got his 15th of the season after Ilicic played him through again. Vladimir Golomic slipped in the area and could do nothing but watch as the Colombian fired into the back of the goal. Ilicic then scored the nicest of the lot, curling his shot from outside of the box inside the far post to make the score 4-1. Ilicic nearly added a second and it would have been a beauty from a free kick, but Cordaz made an excellent save. Alexi Moranchuk scored the fifth with a similar curling effort to the one Ilicic scored from just inside the box. Cordaz could do nothing but watch as that shot went off the upright and into the back of the goal. That was the third time this season that Atalanta have scored five goals in a match, though they are pretty far off pace for the goals that they scored last year when they scored a whopping 98 goals on the season. Moving on, Roma beat Fiorentina 2-1, Leonardo Spinazzola scored in both goals, and Amadou Diawara scored the winner. Roma started out positively, but neither side created a whole lot in the first half. Fiorentina defended really well in the first half, particularly on Roma's counterattack, which we know is one of the most dangerous in the league. Each side had only one chance in that first half. Fiorentina's chance came around the half-hour mark. Frank Ribéry played in Dusan Vlaovic who did really well to stay onside. Vlaovic got a decent shot off, but it was straight at Paolo Lopez, and he made the save. Roma's only chance came just before the half when Spinazzola fired a low hard shot from well outside the area, but Bartolome Drogovski got down to make the save. The second half was more entertaining. Roma opened the scoring only minutes into the half with an absolutely world-class goal from Spinazzola. First, he timed his run perfectly, and then he volleyed beautifully. The level of difficulty on that volley is incredibly high. The ball from Lorenzo Pellegrini was played over the top toward the near post, so Spinazzola had to hit the volley with the ball coming over his shoulder. Not only did he connect fully, but he picked his corner as well, and that goal opened up the game a little bit. Even in the first half, Fiorentina were looking dangerous on the counterattack, and it was always Frank Ribery pulling the strings. That's exactly how Fiorentina scored the equalizer in the 60th minute. Fiorentina countered off a Roma corner kick, Ribéry carried the ball forward and was helped by the fact that Jordan Vertu pulled up with a muscle injury. Instead of playing the ball out to touch, which Fiorentina are not obligated to do, they continued to push forward. 
Christian Biragi played the ball into a dangerous area, and Spinazzola tried to clear the ball out, but instead he smashed it into the back of his own goal. Unfortunately, Vertu had to be removed with what appeared to be a pretty serious groin injury that could cause him to miss a good deal of time. Fiorentina had their share of injuries as well. Igor had to be removed near the end of the first half, and Gaetano Castrovilli had to come out early in the second half. Fiorentina nearly struck again on the counterattack in the 82nd minute, Biragi's cross toward the far post was headed straight up by Spinazzola. Vlahovic's volley from around the penalty spot was heading in, but Lopez did well to push it out. Just when it looked like Fiorentina were going to hold Roma to a draw, Amadou Diawara tapped in to put Roma ahead. Initially, the play was called offside when Diawara played the ball to Rick Karsdorp on the right wing. Perhaps that's why the Fiorentina defenders fell asleep for a second and allowed Diawara to run free in front of goal. However, VAR reviewed the play and confirmed that Nikola Milankovic had in fact played Karsdorp on. This was another very close VAR review, and even though I don't think the lines were drawn terribly accurately by the VAR, I do ultimately think the correct decision was made. Meanwhile, Diawara has suddenly become a very useful player for Roma. He looked good against Braga in the Europa League as well. So even though this was nowhere near Roma's best performance, they still managed to get the three points. Finally, Inter beat Parma 2-1 on goals from Alexis Sanchez and Hernani. This was a surprisingly competitive game. I don't think anyone expected Parma to put up as much of a fight as they did. In fact, you can make a strong case that they were actually the better side in the first half. They were certainly the better team in the first half hour of the match. We saw a lot of positives from Parma's young players like forward Dennis Mann and centre-back Lautaro Valenti, who had the unenviable task of marking Romelu Lukaku. Parma were doing a good job of spreading the play, switching the ball and making the field wide. Their build-up play was really enjoyable to watch, and on the odd occasion that Inter did get forward, Parma defended them well. Very early in the match, it looked like Nicola Barella might have fouled Mann in the area, but VAR determined that Mann actually kicked Barella. We've seen similar decisions like that in Serie A this season, so I have no problems with the non-call. Then Parma nearly opened the scoring in the 15th minute when Yasmin Kurtic was allowed a free header in front of goal, but Samir Handanovic made a good reaction save. Inter took over at the half-hour mark and nearly scored on two separate occasions. First, Ashraf Hakimi blew past Valenti on the right wing before scoring for Eriksson. Eriksson was wide open in front of the empty goal, but the pass was just behind him and nothing came of it. Then a few minutes later, Inter came close again, but Luigi Seppin made a good save point-blank on the first attempt by Milan Skriniar, and then Valenti blocked the second attempt by Ivan Perisic. Unfortunately for Parma, they could not hold on. Inter opened the scoring early in the second half after a bit of a fortunate bounce. Lukaku turned and the ball deflected off of Gaston Brugman and straight into the path of Alexis Sanchez. He got a decent effort on target. Sepe got a piece of the shot, but not enough to keep it out. Ricardo Galliolo cleared the ball off the line, but the goal line technology confirmed that the ball did in fact cross the line. Less than 10 minutes later, Sanchez scored a second. Once again, Lukaku picked up the ball at midfield, outran and outmuscled the opposition, and this time instead of picking his corner as he did in his last two goals, he elected to pass. Sanchez made the run and neatly tucked away his fifth goal of the season. Credit to Parma though, they kept on playing, they kept on fighting, and they certainly made things interesting. With about 20 minutes left to play, Hernani volleyed the cross from substitute Giuseppe Pezzella past Handanovic. Unfortunately, that was the final goal of the match, 
Positive signs for Parma though, if they can play like this every match, then they might just fight their way out of the relegation zone. They're currently 6 points back of safety, with plenty of matches to play. Meanwhile, Inter have now extended their lead to 6 points over Milan. With that draw to Udinese, Milan allowed Juve and Atalanta to pull within 4 points of 2nd place. Roma's late winner ensured that they remain 2 points back of the Champions League zone. With Lazio's win on the table, they would move ahead of us into 6th place, though you have to think that with the current precedent, that match will be rescheduled. So that means other than Milan, every team ahead of us extended their leads by 2 points. We're now 5 points back of the Champions League zone. Of course, we still have the game in hand against Juventus, which is becoming ever more important. And we'll have an opportunity to regain some points this weekend, with Juve playing Lazio on Saturday and Inter playing Atalanta on Monday. Of course, we'll only gain ground if we beat Bologna on Sunday. We'll preview that match in part 3. Napoli in farmacia. <laughs> Io cammino ogni notte. Io cammino sbariando. Io non tengo mai suono, non chiudo mai l'occhio e non bevo caffè. Pate cocche, sienta a me. Pate cocche, sienta a me. Una persiana che sbatte. Un lampione che luce. E un briaca che dice bussanna una porta marata non c'è. A tre mesi non dormi più. Una bucchella vorrei scordare. Gente decide ma gomma già va. Piglia da una pastiglia. Piglia da una pastiglia, sienta a me. Poi mi fa dormire, poi mi fa scordare il mio dolce amore. Piglia da una pastiglia. Piglia da una pastiglia, sienta a me. Poi mi fa sentire come un gran pascià e mi nebbra il cuore. Tinte e vetrine, tutti i farmacisti. La vecchia camomilla ha dato il posto. Alle palline glicero, fosfato e bromo televisionato, grammi 003. Piglia da una pastiglia, sienta a me. In the final part, we'll preview our match on Sunday against Bologna. This will be the 62nd meeting between these two clubs to be played in Napoli. In the previous 61, Napoli won 28, Bologna won 10, and the other 23 resulted in draws. Bologna has really struggled against top 7 clubs this season. They have a record of 1 win, 1 draw, and 7 losses against the top 7. Like Napoli, this Bologna side is wildly inconsistent. Earlier in the season, they drew Torino and then followed that match up with a draw to Atalanta. More recently, they beat Lazio 2-0 and followed that performance up with a 1-0 loss to Cagliari. That inconsistency is why Bologna are sitting in 12th in the table with a record of 7 wins, 7 draws, and 11 losses. That's exactly where Bologna finished last season, but must be disappointing for Bologna fans considering how much talent they have in this squad. Bologna's success also depends on the play of their front four. When they are on, Bologna can be very difficult to stop. Together, they've combined to score 19 of Bologna's 32 goals. They've also combined for 19 assists between them, so they really support each other in attack. Roberto Soriano is the key to the attack, playing in the number 10 role. He leads the team in both goals and assists. This match will be played at the Maradona, which should be a huge advantage for us, 
Bologna have really struggled away from home. They have only two wins away from home against Sampdoria and Parma, and outside of those two games, they've only scored six away goals in the other 11 matches. Bologna's most recent match was away from home and resulted in another loss to a Cagliari team that has really struggled this season. Cagliari only just picked up their first win in their last 17 matches, and that win was against Crotone, which is as close to a guaranteed win as you can find in Serie A. I shouldn't take anything away from Cagliari's performance because they were very solid, particularly at the back. They completely negated that Bologna front four. But Bologna also really lacked intensity and they turned over possession far too easily in that match. They did not record their first shot on target until the opening minutes of the second half. Bologna were much better in the second half but they never really tested Alessio Cranio. And Bologna were fortunate to not concede a second goal when Jardy Schutten cleared the ball off the line. The goal line technology showed that the ball was just millimeters away from being a goal. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Sinisa Mihailovic typically lines up in a 4-2-3-1 formation. Lukas Skorupski will start in goal. Adama Sumauro and Danilo are the regular center backs. Danilo will be well rested after serving his yellow card suspension midweek. With Aaron Hickey out with a shoulder injury and Mitchell Dykes missing time due to muscle fatigue, Ibrahima Mbai has been playing at left back. Takahiro Tomeyasu has a calf injury, so Lorenzo da Silvestri will likely start at right back. Nicolas Dominguez and Matthias Vanberg are the preferred pairing in the double pivot, but Dominguez picked up an injury against Cagliari, so we should see Jerdy Schutten rotate in for him. The front four haven't changed much of late. Nicolas Sansone will play on the left wing, Ricardo Orsolini plays on the right wing, Roberto Soriano plays in the 10 spot, and Muso Barrow plays at striker. However, with short rest, Mihailovic does have options to rotate. Emmanuel Vignato is an option on the left wing, Andreas Skovolsen is an option on the right wing, and Rodrigo Palacio is an option at striker. For Napoli, I think we'll see Gattuso line up in the 4-2-3-1 again. I think the goalkeeper is a coin flip. I thought we'd see David Ospina start against Sassuolo, but he didn't, which leads me to believe that perhaps he's not fully fit yet, so I'll go with Alex Meret to start again in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly will return from his suspension to start at center back, and I think Kostas Manolas will get his first start since returning from injury. With Mario Rui in the doghouse and LCT Sai not having a particularly good game against Sassuolo, I think we'll see Fauzi Gulam at left back. Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start again at right back. Timoy Bakayoko did not participate in training on Saturday, so I think we'll see Diego Demis start alongside Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing and Matteo Politano will start again on the right wing. With Piotr Zelinski picking up a slight muscle injury against Sassuolo and Victor Osman apparently ready for a return, I think we'll see Dries Mertens drop into the 10th spot and Osman play at striker. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's take a look at our three keys to the match. The first key to the match is we need to focus on the task at hand. I mentioned at the end of part 2 that Juve play Lazio and Inter play Atalanta this round, so we immediately have an opportunity to regain some ground that we lost midweek. We haven't been great at capitalizing on those opportunities this season, so this match is a must win. Really, every match for the balance of the season is a must win, but there are two reasons why I say we have to stay focused. First, this will be the final match on Sunday with only Inter and Atalanta to play on Monday. That means we'll know the other results of the round heading into this match and we seem to get in our own heads when we know the other results. 
Our friend Joey Cacavala was the first to point out to me that we struggle in this late fixture, which is at 8.45 local time or 2.45 Eastern time. We have a horrible record in that time slot with only one win, one draw, and four losses. The other reason we need to focus on the task at hand is because we are coming up to the most important stretch of our season. After this match, we play Milan, Juventus, and Roma in a span of eight days. Our entire season could be determined during that stretch, but we can't be distracted by that. If we are too busy looking ahead, we could drop points right here. Our second key to the match is that we need to attack through the wings. With injuries to Tomiyasu, Hickey, and Dykes, Bologna are pretty thin at fullback. They certainly won't be playing their best options. With our predicted 11, I think we can cause Bologna's backline a lot of problems. Both Gulam and Di Lorenzo can get forward on the overlap to play in crosses to Osiman, who's admittedly not great in the air, but at least he's a big target. They don't necessarily need to cross the ball in the air either. We've had success cutting the ball back to Mertens or Zielinski at the top of the box, so hopefully at least one of them starts. Those overlaps, of course, also open up the shot for Insigne and Politano, who can cut into their strong foot and either take the curling shot or play an in-swinging cross toward the back post. So I think we're going to have plenty of chances to score in this match. Our final key to the match is we can't let Bologna shoot. Even though they don't score often away from home, Bologna have some absolutely deadly forwards. Barrow, Orsolini, Soriano, and Sansone can all score in a variety of different ways. They have the quality to score world-class goals from a distance. They also love to get to the byline and cut the ball back to the late runner in front of the 6-yard box. So even though we'll have Koulibaly and Manolas back together, we'll need our fullbacks to follow those runs to the byline and block those cutbacks, and they'll have to do it without committing fouls. And we'll need our midfielders to track those late runs into the area. The head official for this match is Daniel Lekifi. This will be his 8th time officiating a Napoli game. In the previous 7, we have 6 wins and a draw, so we do have a very good record in his matches. The only match we had him for this season was our 6-0 route of Fiorentina. His assistants are Filippo Valeriani and Alessandro Lociccero. The 4th official is Davide Garcini, and Alejandro Di Paoli is on the VAR, assisted by Pasquale De Meo. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-0 Napoli win on goals from Lorenzo Insigne and Matteo Politano. I think we'll be extra motivated by the last second draw to Sassuolo, and we will come out hungry for a win. I don't think the team will be impacted at all by Insigne's outburst at the end of the match. If anything, that should only motivate this team more. Frankly, I was happy to see that reaction. It's about time that we started showing some emotion. We should have been pissed off after that result. We also learned this week that the Silencio Stampa will remain for the balance of the season and that the Laurentiis will be staying at the hotel with the players and staff on the eve of this match. I know that might seem negative, but I actually think this is De Laurentiis' way of supporting the club. As far as I can tell, the media negativity has decreased since the Silencio Stampa started. I don't know if that necessarily takes any pressure off Gattuso to deliver results, but it is one less thing to worry about. Bologna are a capable team, but their track record away from home speaks for itself. We should have our best centre-back partnership in Manolas and Koulibaly playing, which doesn't help Bologna who have really struggled to score away from home. So long as we avoid costly mistakes, which seems like a lot to ask for this season, we should walk away with all three points. 
So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. Be sure to check out our latest episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide with Antonio Mango. We'll be back with another episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide after the Bologna match, so keep an eye out for that. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.